Hello and welcome to another episode in our Conversations with Sound Artists podcast. I'm Glenn Kaiser. I'm the director of the Dolby Institute. And this podcast is a co-production of the Dolby Institute and the Soundworks Collection. I'm really thrilled uh, to be here today talking with uh, Joe Wright and Craig Berkey. Thanks for joining us, guys. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. It's very nice to be here with Craig. <laughs> <laughs> this is unusual. You don't you don't often have the uh, the sound man here for the uh, for the press goings on, which is which is fantastic. Yeah, it's really good. Um, so this uh, we were talking a little bit before we started, but this particular uh, set of conversations is really focusing on the collaboration between directors and their sound designer, sound supervisors. So I've got questions for you guys about all of the the films that you've worked on together. Joe, obviously, you kind of you know, became, I think, well-known to American audiences with Pride and Prejudice and then did Atonement. And then, uh, Craig, you joined uh, the team for The Soloist. And then you guys worked together on Hannah, Anna Karenina, Pan, and now Darkest Hour. And obviously, we're, you know, very excited to talk about Darkest Hour because that's the one that's, that's I think, at the, at the top of everyone's minds right now. So I guess my first question, Joe, for you is Churchill is kind of territory that's been you know, well explored. So what was it about, how did you decide this particular part of the story? And, you know, what was the what was the hook for you to get into this film? So World War II interests me partly for very personal reasons, which is that my father was born in 1906 um, and so lived through the Second World War in London. Um, and then he passed away when I was 19 and we never really talked about his life experience much. Um, so looking at the, the history of the 20th century is an opportunity for me to think about and experience the world in which he lived. Um, so maybe that's why I keep on going back to it. Um, uh, this particular story, I've never been that interested in Churchill, really. Um uh, Churchill in Britain has kind of been co-opted by the centre-right, hmm. um, if not the, you know, right-right. Mm-hmm. And um, and I'm not really of that um, political persuasion myself. And so um, in terms of heroes, you know, I'm far more interested in people like Clement Attlee and, and you know, the foundation of the social, uh, you know, uh, uh, welfare state and, mm-hmm. and so on. Um, uh, but... I was sent this screenplay and the structure was um, as it is now, um, set over four four weeks. Um, And I was fascinated by this character, um, whether he was um, uh, fictional or or from real life. I I identified with him, uh, dare I say it. Um, And I identified with it profoundly because... um, I just made a film called Pan, and it had been absolutely slated. Um, it lost about a hundred million dollars, and everyone hated it. Um, and uh, and that caused an enormous crisis of confidence um, and doubt uh, in myself as a filmmaker. Um, and then here was a here was a story of a man who in the most extreme circumstances, suffers a crisis of confidence, of doubt. And he turns that doubt into something positive. Um, uh, and he, and the film acknowledged, really, for me, the idea that doubt is, is um, an essential factor uh, in the attainment of wisdom. 
And that felt a very positive uh, outcome to a very negative experience. And so that's why I kind of wanted to go there. I also really wanted to make a drama again after Pan, you know. Um, uh, I realised that what I love and the reason why I do what I do uh, is because I'm interested in how people connect or unfortunately more often than not don't connect. Um, and that is the the central, for me, the central theme of all drama. So in a sense, it became a redemption story for both you and Churchill. Yeah, in a way, yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it's very difficult to ever separate um, the work from um, the emotional story of one's life. They're, they're the same thing. Really. Sure, sure. I think if there's one thing that, that jumped out at me going back and looking at your films again, <clears throat> and certainly the films that, that the both of you have worked on together, um, there's, a, there's a playfulness and a visual abstraction um, that I think is kind of a hallmark of your cinematic storytelling style. And I feel like that opens up a whole world of possibilities for you, Craig, yeah. as a sound designer. Can you speak to that? Yeah, well, I mean, that, that's so true that what we do, it, it doesn't start with coming to post-production and saying, okay, now we're going to do sound design. It starts with, well, the script. It starts with the idea. And, uh, and working with Joe, you know, it's, it starts with these images that we get. And, and his sense of rhythm and music and timing. So it's a, everything is set up for us to take it to the next level um, from the beginning. So it's quite actually quite easy in some ways, but every film has its own little style that we work on. But there seemed to be like, it, 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 it seemed to me looking at the films that Joe often sort of gave you these gifts. Like, so for instance, in Anna Karenina, there's the wonderful, you know, the, the theatricality of the stage productions yeah. that really just gives you crazy license to go out and do some amazing, some amazing things. There's that, yeah. there's that wonderful moment in the opening of Anna Karenina where, you know, it's the model train set, but mm -hmm. then you bring in the real train real, sound yeah. over the, the model trains. It's just this beautiful yeah. little moment. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, I love all that uh, to me that's so important to setting the tone for the film uh, sonically same in darkest hour creating the world that uh, you know Churchill lived in at the time but it's yeah it's it's open but it it, it takes still it still takes a while to figure out what we're going to do it's not it's not easy just to we don't don't put the sound for the visuals that we see and go okay great you know every film that we work on they say the mix for that Anna Karenina we went back after three or four days and we finally said, oh, we figured out what we're doing. Yeah. And we went, back, <laughs> Is that we right? went back to the beginning and started again. Because even though it. we had the visuals and we had the sounds that we had picked, we still were working on how is this going to sound and how are we presenting this? It seems to me that you pay a lot of attention to the first 10 minutes of your films. They, they really... <laughs> they, they, less to the rest of it. <laughs> I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't mean to imply that at all. But the first 10 minutes are really... You, are, you, you work really hard to set the tone and establish the world and also to establish the vocabulary of the cinematic tools that you're going to use. Um, and I'm thinking about the opening of, of Hannah, you know, in, in the forest and, and the specific... The, the sound design in that opening of Hannah is just fantastic and what you're hearing and what you're not hearing, it's all really deliberate.
So how do you decide where to start the story? I don't know. I, I generally have an idea and then I post-rationalize it. <laughs> um, uh, I'd like to suggest that, um, that I'm clever enough to have a kind of intellectual concept of how to start something and then I find a way of realizing that cinematically but that would be untrue um uh it's just a sense I have it's a it's a feeling I have and it's usually cinematic by which I mean it's very rarely well it's never really just an image I get quite offended when people say your films are like paintings and because uh, I don't want them to be like paintings, I want them to be like cinema, um, which is, you know, sound and image working together 50-50 um, uh, movement. You know, um, I love Tarkovsky's line, sculpting in time. Um, uh, it's, you know, I, I, I think filmmaking's closest um, art form is music. It's a time-based media. It happens in time. And, uh, and we're presented with these images and these sounds um in time and uh and and so generally it's i try and find an image that sums up the film as as a whole um to begin with uh and then it it kind of develops from there really um uh often the sound the sound work for that beginning will try and give the audience a sense of the palette of the movie um, and a sense of the world that they're stepping into. Although I quite like breaking that as well sometimes, you know. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, Once you've established the yeah, present, then you break it. Yeah, yeah. Um, because, you know, what I'm trying to do is express my, our experience of life and life uh, is not tonally consistent. Um, so, so I like the breaking of tone as well. Um, uh, I like kind of lulling the audience sometimes, and then um, uh, and then waking them up again um, with some kind of visceral um, impact, be that audio or visual or both. You know, often. So, what were the hooks for you in Darkest Hour? What? How did you? How did you go about building this very specific world in a very specific? time frame in, in London? Well, I mean, basically we, we had to build it around Gary and his voice. So we worked hard, a team of people to make sure we heard every word. But then there were, there were bits of, of historical accuracy that we wanted to achieve. Like uh, we talked about in London that they, there are no church bells that are rung at that time, except for Big Ben or uh, hmm. uh, and things that you know normally as a background we might put in these kind of items or uh there were in the uh war rooms where the map room you see a whole line of telephones and we talked about well those were all put on silent people were calling in their lo locations but churchill's bedroom was next door and he didn't want to get woken up oh so the phones were yeah so there are little yeah. bits of um you know pieces of history that mm. sonically that we want to recreate and they're not Individually, they don't mean that much, but I think if you put all those together, you've cr now created subtly this this world that we don't live in, and uh, and it felt it feels right uh, to do it like that. Um, and then you know just all the little details. I mean, that's what's great about working with the same person. I know from the beginning what Joe is thinking about these things, right? I know like and it. it it's taken a while to get there. It didn't happen on the first sure. film, but I know when I'm looking at a scene, I know 
okay, well, I, I can hear in my head what I think, but I also know what Joe's thinking or wants to try at least. Mm-hmm. And, and we, we work towards those goals for all of these scenes. And in this film, it was uh, a detail in Foley was actually pretty important, right? You know, um, the the sound of it and the the quality and the clarity of it. So I actually spent a lot of time before we start mixing, pre-mixing everything and making a lot of decisions, knowing through his ears and mine what we want to start with. You told me you actually recorded Foley in, in the real war rooms, right? Yeah. Yeah. Location Foley in the war rooms. Now... We also record in the studio and, and they're edited together so that sometimes there's too much room on a, you know, a close-up footstep. I can bring in some studio on top of that. They're sunk sure. together. But yeah, to, we do that on every film, try and get some location recordings. and that it just uh, makes it feel more real. Yeah, I mean, again, no one's going to know. You're not going to hear it and go, wow, that was recorded in the war room. <laughs> right? But again, it's part of a feel of it. But I think also in cinema, there's a, there's a thing that, is, that I really strongly believe in which is this idea that there should always I always want stuff to be just beyond the audience's comprehension um, mm, not comprehension um, you want the, stuff the consciousness yeah beyond yeah. their consciousness mm-hmm. so that it's just under the surface um, they might not consciously um, recognize that where you know foley's were recorded in the war rooms they might consciously not even hear a sound um, but it's somehow, if they, they they appreciate that there's more beyond what they're um, consciously recognizing, and therefore that creates a sense of magic, um, uh, a sense of um, uh, more than is immediately recognizable, and makes for a very rich viewing experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. one hopes. Yeah. yeah, and that and that again comes from where we start mixing. We're we're quite far down the road. And so uh, on a final mix, I'm not adjusting small elements. We're thinking of that. We're thinking of bigger picture. We're sitting back and now going, we have all this stuff. And it's it's pretty close to where we want it to be, but that's not where we're going to end up. You know, it takes. It, I think it takes mm-hmm. a step further because we can sit back. Do we really need this here? Right. Well, let me back up a little bit. So this is the fifth movie that you've done together. Can you describe to me what's how do you actually work together? How does the collaboration um kind of come about at, at what point do you call Craig and say hey I've got a movie that I'm going to make or how does that how does that conversation happen? as soon as possible so I can make sure that I get him <laughs> uh, <clears throat> he's not going to be off working for the Cohen brothers um, uh, and um, uh, and then the conversation starts fairly early not you send me, as, you send me a script yeah I send, I, send, I send Craig the script and we talk about the themes and talk about um, uh, and then Craig comes up with ideas and and um, uh, and then we don't really talk again until after I've shot I, I don't I don't we don't talk much during production, production. Um, and then as soon as I'm in post I'm on the phone to him going, I need this I need that I need this I need that watch yeah. this what but do you think of that there was something Craig that you said earlier on like uh, you know these wonderful sound design moments that that come through in the films um, you know, you obviously don't create those in post-production. You've 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 shot those. You've thought about them ahead yeah, of time. Yeah. And you know, uh, I conceive stuff in sound. That's what I wanted to ask you about. Sort of, at what when do you start? Is it from the first time that you read a new script? It happens in my mind as I'm reading the script, and then I think about the film for probably 
at least six months prior to shooting. And as I'm thinking about it, I'm hearing it and seeing it at the same time. And that's and and more and more so. But you know, I I, I think in I think in film, you know, yeah, which is complete. Yeah, it's complete. Yeah. It's, You're it's, seeing the final. Yeah, I'm seeing the film in my head as I'm. Uh, and then I and then the job is to try and express that to everyone I'm working with. Um, I was very lucky. I went to I went to art school uh, rather than film school. Um, it was a fine art film and video course, um, um, and uh, we had a great sound teacher. Um, and uh, he explained to us that um, that that film was fifty percent sound and fifty percent image. Uh, and I completely ag- agreed with him. And we were working on 16mm most of the time and Steenbeck's um, and Bolex cameras. We didn't actually have the money to develop film. Mm. So a lot of the early films were just literally us scratching on bits of... Uh, or stock. painting on bits of stock. Um, and then... Or clear leader. And then creating recording soundtracks to go with those and and then editing sound to these abstract images Mm. um and so very early on it was about the relationship between sound and image i think my first film at college was called the stairwell and it was a kind of horror Mm. and um (laughs) and it was literally just a point of view camera going up this incredible stairwell of this housing projects in london um and and the sound uh was um the the point of the film it was about what you heard behind the doors and all these horrific sounds were coming from these from behind these these doors you know so very early on I was always thinking about uh, the sound of a film and and for me the sound I'd like to be able to just listen to the sound of the film almost like an album you know um, uh, it's a it's a it's a complete thing uh, a, a, a soundscape. Um, and it's and I, and 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 it tells you know the image. We're also image literate now um, that it's very difficult to <clears throat> to surprise people with an image. You know, um, uh, but sound uh, we're not so so sound literate, and it can kind of creep in from from behind. You know, and and. Um, uh, and I loved growing up, you know, David Lynch was one of my favourite directors from about the age of 15. I saw Blue Velvet, I think, when I was 15, and it blew my mind. With and the amazing track work that Alan Split. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right. And that was a big influence on me as a filmmaker in terms, technically, in terms of how one uses sound um, in relation to, to image. And being able to... Im- embrace non-literal sound design that sometimes has absolutely nothing to do with what's happening absolutely visually yeah, yeah. absolutely and yeah. that was really important I, I you know I, what I love is the is when sound um, is working with an image to create a third thing you know um, you yeah. put sound and image together and something else is created that is greater than you know mm-hmm. the individual parts that was in Hannah we talked about that yeah. with the some of the sound design uh, little sections where uh, when you talked about David Lynch and Alan Splett, I was like, oh, okay, I'm going to, and so there are, there are pieces in there with uh, random backwards things that were put on faders that, that uh, there was no score in these sections, but it did create a, just a whole nother weird environment or vibe for a particular sequence. 
I spent a lot of time also after I left college working in on in the rave scene in in Britain. Um, I, I would do light shows for raves, um, <laughs> and uh, and so I was very influenced by the rave scene and 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 um, you know uh, electronic music. Um, how is the how did the rave scene and EDM influence the sound design in your films? Because you know you can go back to the Beatles with "Tomorrow Never Knows" and kind of playing stuff backwards and mm-hmm. playing forwards and kind of creating whole sonic journeys. There was a DJ called Andrew Weatherall who was one of like the heroes of the London rave scene, and he would play a set that would be like three hours long, and um, <clears throat> and uh, there were no breaks in it. It was one symphonic. Uh, experience that took you on the most extraordinary sonic journeys from incredible ecstatic highs to then deep dark dark places and then and then you get really dark and then it would kind of explode into sonic light and um, and so uh, uh, those people had a huge effect you know yeah and yeah. what I love about Craig is that he's worked in music. He understands music. He he kind of, and so we try to create soundtracks, not you know other than the music that are musical, right. that are, that have a rhythm, that right. have a that have a you know we're often talking about dynamic range. You know we've got a high note in the tapping of a you know of a of a lighter on a on a on a on a banister. Um, but we need some bass, so let's kind of bring, you know, so we're talking about it in terms of music. Where's the bass in this track, in this scene? Um, uh, All of those, you know, so we're talking about it like a, you know, like a piece of music. Often the voices are kind of uh, the lyrics and they're kind of the mid-range, and then we try and pull either way, which is one of the reasons, by the way, that I love cinema as opposed to television. Because in cinema, you get to play with the full with the dynamic, dynamic range. range. Right. Um, in television, the sound, even in, you know, nice home, you know, cinemas, it's you're, you're, it's a much narrower dynamic sound range. For broadcast specification. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, I'm curious about the the collaboration between you and and the, the composer um, on, on the films and whether it's Chemical Brothers, you know, uh, or or Dario, like how does that how does that conversation happen? You said before we started that you actually have the music tracks very early on. Yeah, well, that's that's one of the things that makes all this work. Is uh, usually we have the score. What's going to be the score? A mock up version of it. But while we're working on the film, and I believe while you're shooting, sometimes, right? Yeah, very often. Yeah. I'll, I'll I'll get Dario to start writing music based on the script because um, I find that that. Um, and I'll say to him, listen, I want three themes. One of them should be like, you know, Churchill's energy. Um, and I'll show him a photograph of Gary mm-hmm. walking. And so he has a sense of the rhythm uh, of that. And then um, uh, he'll, 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 you know, mock something up for me. We'll talk about that. Um, he'll come up with a kind of sort of version of the piece and that we agree on and then I'll play that on set and then Gary will be walking in time with that piece of music really and then we use that in the cutting room immediately yeah. I've never I never use never use um uh, temps I, no. I can't stand temps so it's all and it's a kind of organic development process <clears throat> between myself Dario and Craig yeah so then when I, I'm working on our team is working on it 
the clarity that we can get because we know rhythmically we know what's happening sonically with you know what frequency range he's yeah. working in oh it's right. it, it's fantastic and then i or i can ask dario you know can can i hear just a certain part of that music and match explode like in darkest hour matching explosions against timpani hits or, or whatever it might be so that again when we get to that final mix i'm, I'm not having to do any of that we're thinking about different things and then i also mix the music in it too so that as I'm going, then I can think about how we how this music fits in with everything else as well before we get there. And also you were giving, on Darkest Hour, you were giving Dario sounds that he could right. then, you know, it's percussive sounds sometimes yeah. that he could use in the music and vice versa. Yeah, well. it goes both ways yeah. sometimes. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So there's a, it's basically a kind of collaborative conversation as if mm. two musicians, i.e. Dario and Craig, were playing together. Mm. Right, yeah. And then you see the end results. You know, it's uh, again. I can make a lot of decisions early on because of that. It can mm-hmm. sort of get us to a f- really close place. That uh, in in some other films where that hasn't happened, uh, we you know you obviously you play the score and you play what you've done, and everybody goes, uh oh, we have a lot of work. Right? <coughs> sure, that that first moment on the mixing stage when you put the yeah, you put everything. Not out that anything and, is bad. It's just it's gonna take nobody a lot was listening to, to each. Yeah, a band like not playing together do you do you do temp mixes yeah we do i mean luckily you know uh god love technology um (laughs) luckily um craig you know can do a lot of it at home uh on his desk at home so um uh and then we'll we'll just do a kind of how long did we spend on the temp mix like three days or something which is sort of frustrating uh because you you really want to get in and start you know um but yeah, we do. And, and, and those are kind of sketches and they're very useful um, uh, for the process because it means that when you come to the final, you've already kind of sketched out certain stuff. You're not really hearing things for the first time on the final mixing yeah. stage. You're, yeah. This is a progression of what you've built upon. Yeah, but also, I mean, very much so in the cutting room. You know, I'm, I'm always getting Craig to send stuff across um, or I'll send Craig a scene and say, could you work on this a bit? And then yeah. I'll put that into the edit. So again, it's really a matter of editing sound and image uh, as one thing mm-hmm. um, uh, throughout the process rather than editing, you know, editing image and then editing sound. I'm glad you talked about um, the, the influence of the the teacher that you had in film school because I, I find that so many directors don't, you know, they haven't really learned how to use sound creatively as a storytelling tool. And, you know, from the first, you know, you know, uh, the first film of yours that I saw was Atonement. And even I was, I remember thinking immediately about the typewriter and how, like, this is obviously a director who thinks very creatively about sound. And and it's, uh, and that makes sense that you're integrating that into the picture editing process. And and, yeah, no, well, that's, I was going to say, that's when, when Joe calls, I say, yep. (laughs) <laughs> because of that interest in it uh you know it makes what we do inter- mm. ourselves our jobs i'm really interested in it uh i'm full fully into the what we're doing all the time because he cares about it but i care about every aspect of filmmaking i love filmmaking i right. love the process yeah. um uh i want to be in the heat of it you know mm-hmm. i i um I, and you know maybe i'm a control freak but um but i don't um, you know, I, I, I sit when we're editing. I sit at, next to the editor and edit with him mm-hmm. every day yeah. for 
seven months. You know, that's what I do. So you're not the kind of director who comes in once a week and takes a look at an edit and gives notes and walks away? No, because, no, 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 that doesn't work at all. No, But many directors do do that. I know they do, but I can't understand why they would. Because why would you be a film director if you don't like making films? Right. You know, and that's where the making happens. Yeah. That's the joy of it, you know. And, and also, when you're at the table, you know, working on it, that's when the ideas come. Sure. You can't, I can't go away, have an idea, and then come back and try and implement it. It's, it's through, through the process, the physical process of making something, that you discover what that thing wants to be, really. Right. And, and then you're with us in the sound mix pretty much the whole time. Yeah. Sitting right next to me. And uh, th- again, it's the same thing. You know, we're working on stuff and you, hey, what about this? And I'm like, oh, yeah. And then, but what about that? And we have uh, the same ideas a lot because yeah. he'll say something and I'm like, yeah, yeah I'm doing it. <laughs> I, I know what you're thinking, you know. Which is lovely to get to that point. Sure. You know, it's the same with my designer. I, we're at a point now where I can't remember who's, uh, which ideas are whose. And it doesn't matter, you know. Um, uh, what matters is that they're there and that they work and that we got really excited when they were happening, you know. Yeah. yeah. Um, there's a kind of, when you're, when, you're, when you're in it, there's a kind of heat that happens and a fizz. Mm-hmm. And, it's, um, and it's the best feeling in the world. And it's kind of what I live for, really. That feeling of being creative with other people. Yeah, um, sure. And uh, and and then you have moments where you go, oh God, I've no idea what we're doing, and I feel <laughs> shit, and I want to go home, and this is like wrong, 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 and and you you know you get tired and whatever. But yeah, but that's when somebody else says, okay, but just wait a second, how yeah. about we try this? Or, absolutely, right? Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great. I, you know, I think we've we've I think Craig and I we've definitely worked with directors who are less engaged with post-production mm-hmm. than others you know and they and they once they get the edit to a certain place they really start to think about what's the next film right. and so you know i think we've had that experience of, of directors who come in to the mix once a week and hear right play back and give notes and then but it's that's that's clearly not the way that that you guys work because the 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 tracks are so detailed and so you know the the relationship of the images and the sound are so tightly Wow, and it's really fantastic. Work. Yeah, I mean, and again, it's a, it is because everybody is in that same room together working, mm-hmm. and then I mean, part of part of what I do as well. In in we have a room full of people that some people don't know each other. It's new editors or whatever. The job too is to create an environment where it's a positive environment for everybody to work. So. I mean, I I have a little silly awards sometimes if somebody has a good idea. I mean, is that true? Yeah. Yeah, a little. Just to make everybody feel so you guys like make it, it's fun to come into work. Yeah, and also that there's a sense of ownership for everybody. Right. Everybody, you know, if, if people have a sense of ownership of a piece of work, then they're going to be thinking about the piece of work and then they're going to come up with good ideas. Right. Uh, and then that's going to make the film better. Right. And then that's going to make me look better. <laughs> <laughs> win, win, all around. We should mention Becky Ponting. Oh, yes, yeah, so of course. Yeah, and Becky Ponting, who's worked on every... Everything I've ever done. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Who does? Who is a supervisor with me? She does the dialogue editing and ADR on the films, and also because she's over there in London, she's on the ground in case we need to do anything sure. different or whatever. Yeah. And she does an amazing job of putting the tracks together. And on this film too, you can see, you know, uh, with Gary's performance, 
taking pieces and, and working it so that we can hear everything clearly and it sounds good. Um, didn't meet. Yeah, she's a she's a really really vital component of the team. Yeah, um, and she's also someone whose uh, opinion I think you and I trust implicitly. And she will. Yeah. She's a, she's she's quite tough. Um, uh-huh. uh, <laughs> and uh, Becky Jack boots. And yeah. um, she's quite tough. And she'll she she she's uncompromising. Um, yeah. And sometimes she'll. Um, tell us that we're wrong yeah um and and we listen to her um she's really really important yeah she's as much a kind of um uh perfectionist um detail freak as <laughs> as um as craig and i are oh yeah she won't let anything go for we uh-uh. say oh yeah that uh-uh. sounds good she's like um no hang on a second <laughs> but again in in that room that's never a bad thing Right. Yeah. It's always it's always a good thing, even though she's yeah. going to say she doesn't like what we just did, or whatever's yeah. happening. That's that's fine because you know, oh, we should listen to. But that. also, also, we've created an environment between the three of us where we know that we're appreciated, and and we kind of we know that each of us thinks the other one's sort of pretty good at what they do. <laughs> so so there isn't a kind of, you know, there's no egos or no trust. insecurities. There's trust. And there's a right, sense of right. that you are loved for what you do and, and who you are. And so therefore, if someone says, you know, I don't like that, it's not, they're not having a go at you. Everyone is. Yeah, it's not personal them. in any way. Yeah. The, 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 the film is, is, we're all at the service of the film. Right, right. Watching through the films again, it, uh, you know, I could almost I imagine that I, I was feeling you get excited even at the script or conceptual stage about the sound possibilities for, for some of these films. And I was, I was thinking about the, the Soloist, which was the first film that, that you guys worked on. And there's, there's, you know, the way you use the city to introduce sonic elements into it. And then also for me, you know, I love talking about sound as a way to express the POV of the characters. And, and obviously you have a schizophrenic character and right. the soloist and, and a great part of the genius of the sound design of that film is using the sound to let the audience experience the world the way he is experiencing it. Right. Well, that was, uh, yeah, our first film that hadn't worked with you very much. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember um, during, I think it was one of our temp mixes, there was a scene, um, he's, he's watching television in his place and he starts to go mad. And there had been some sounds that we had sort of done thematically throughout of what he's hearing. And, and I had, uh, the night before, thought, what would it be like if other people heard what he was doing instead? Running through that scene with what we had. And then I said, uh, uh, Joe, I, I just have some other ideas here. And I played his tracks and I turned around and it, there was a big grin on his face. And uh, he was like, can we use that? And I was like, yeah, we can use that. Let's put it in right now. And I was like, oh, this is going to be great. Fear for you, fear for you, fear for you, 
I'll protect you from their bloody I'll clothes. be here to protect brain. you from their eyes. Step right No one else loves you. Oh, no 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 this is your I'll protect you. I love this because he's listening and uh, thinking and he's not just set on what we've done and and you know that was that, for me that was but that's the best way isn't it like you're thoroughly prepared you've thought everything through you're you're really f- clear on what you want but then you also let other things come in yeah. absolutely which is what great actors do as well you know it's, it's what great you know it's 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 um that's creativity isn't it you you, you painters do it too you, you you prepare you you work really hard to give yourself um all the kind of knowledge and tools and preparation that you can and then um, you stay present in the moment and um, and present to the opportunities of the moment, um, and that's and 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 the, the meeting of those two things is is thrilling. Yeah, yeah. Well, so with Darkest Hour, you know, it, it it's a very different kind of film, and maybe it doesn't have the the sort of opportunities for the sort of the more obvious sound design moments with like this the synesthesia from Soloist or some of the bigger sequences from. Uh, from Pan uh, or um, or Anna Karenina, but you know, we were talking before about you did an, a, a lot of work with tones and very subtle stuff to communicate Churchill's kind of state of mind, especially as he's weighing this huge decision. Can you t- talk about that a little bit? Yeah, all examples would be in the war cabinet room. We had uh, a series of sounds for the air conditioning system, and at certain points. In certain scenes, if Churchill is upset at something, we, we would subtly drop out a part of a sound and, to, and totally change what's going on in the room for that. And again, it's a subtle thing, but you can definitely hear what's going on. Um, and we did other, other pieces where, well, there's a, a calendar sound throughout the film that each time it happens, it's a little lower pitched and a little slower. It's the same sound, same set of sounds. But it kind of just raises the stakes. Yeah, as, as you go yeah. through, it subtly is ticking down and the weighing of his decision on him. As a as a as a response, probably to my uh, to the kind of baroque um, uh, extremism of of Pan, um, uh, I wanted to, and I've been listening to a lot of minimalist music. Um, uh, from Philip Glass to Niels Fram and Max Richter and people like that, modern stuff. And um, and I was interested in creating as minimalist a film as possible, uh, both in how I used the camera, uh, uh, the sets, um, and then taking that all the way through to the sound design. So that was quite new for us, mm-hmm. you know. Um, yeah. uh, normally I'm kind of wanting more, <laughs> and uh, and in this film, I was um, encouraging Craig and the team to use less. Um, and so, for instance, with that, with the with the air conditioning sound, um, I think you'd probably laid up four or five sounds that yeah. work together. Right. Um, and in this movie, I was like, okay, let's use one. Um, and what is that? What is that single sound? Uh, what is the kind of cleanness of that? And. How was that as an artist? How was how was that minimal exploration? Was that really satisfying for you? I loved it. Yeah, yeah. I loved it. Um, and I think it's probably where I'll continue to go. You know, I think we're we're entering a different phase. That we I am <laughs> uh, I am entering a different phase of my you know uh, 
work and changing and developing and I'm finding that um, I'm far more interested in pairing stuff back now mm. than I ever was before. Mm-hmm. Well, I think sometimes it's it's just the one right sound yeah. is all the one thing is all you need. I mean, what we do and technologies piled on is just oh, we can put all this stuff in and we can do it and, and it becomes too much and we just don't. And I mean, you watch movies now and there's a lot of stuff going on. It's yeah. it's our style at the moment, a lot of music and things. And so I, it's actually quite difficult to put the one right sound in. It's way more difficult than putting lots of sounds in. Yeah. You know, being, being um, simple is really hard. And um, not relying on tricks and gimmicks yeah, and a bunch yeah, of absolutely. pyrotechnics yeah, to absolutely. carry through. Yeah. And, and, you know, uh, and, and that's what I'm interested in doing is, is finding an aesthetic that is, that is somehow simple and uh, clear uh, to express the intentions of the story. It's quite sim- It sounds simple, yeah. but it's really it's it's what I'm enjoying is how hard it is. Mm-hmm. Right, right. But when it's successful, yeah. how it, it, there's a scene in Darkest Hour when Churchill's going to go into the war cabinet room and there's a little vestibule beforehand, and he walks in there, closes the door, and we. We tried to make that as quiet as possible, but when we did playbacks of that, I, I took my breath away. Like that actually worked because he was he was in there, and it was taking he was having a moment by having and it was just nothing. Yeah, it was just him, and you could hear it his breath, mm-hmm. a couple of breaths before he walked in and had to face everybody. And, and like, again, it's a kind of rhythm thing. It's about taking away rather than you know perfection is attained not when there's nothing more to add but when there's nothing more to take away um that the idea that you kind of have you walk 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 into the door boom quiet dum, 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 or you know walk 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 into the room boom into the room you know and so it's a kind of it's you're you're you're, you're creating a kind of musical rhythm there it's rhythm and contrast yeah. and yeah. right yeah exactly. and back to music again too especially especially we didn't talk about rhythm but that's a huge component of things mm. uh again going back to the soloist it was a scene in a bar and uh, uh there's a background music playing neil diamond i believe right yeah um and at the end of the scene the bartender's cleaning glasses and they put one on the table that was right on the last note perfectly in yeah. rhythm with the the music cue and i'm watching this so that is awesome who who else is going to do that and pay attention to that yeah right yeah and audiences don't necessarily go oh look that bottle was in sync with the music but nevertheless if you're ending on the on the downbeat then you're then the scene has a finality to it and it, so they'll understand the finality of the grammar that's the end of the thought. But I also think they may not be aware of it consciously, but they know that they're in the hands of artists who are, know what they're doing. And that, that has an effect on them, I think. Um, I don't know if we know what we're doing. I'll say it. No, I think the important thing is to not know what you're doing. I think the important thing is to be naive, you know, and to, and to embark upon every film like I've no idea how to make a film. How do I make a film? Um, and it feels that way. Um, and, uh, and, and if you go in like a kind of holy fool, uh, naive and naked into the process, then you're going to learn some stuff. You know, if you go in going, I know how to make a film, you're in the hands of someone who knows how to make a film. It's not going to work for anyone. No one's going to get much out of that. Very good. Well, that's, I think that's a brilliant way to wrap it up. 
Joe, Craig, thanks so much for talking to us about Darkest Hour and about all five of the films that you've done together. So it was a really fun conversation. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Yeah, you're welcome. So wrapping up, this is Glenn Kaiser from the Dolby Institute and the Soundworks Collection. Thanks for joining us. <laughs>